I'm Alan Wardus, and you're listening to Think Radio. As a matter of fact, he became kind of a symbol for the trial. These artist pictures of Bobby Seale, a black man chained and gagged in an American courtroom, where it just became an iconic picture. That's Rennie Davis, legendary 1960s anti-war activist and member of the Chicago 7. This month is the 50th anniversary of riots outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. That event arguably changed the course of U.S. history. You won't want to miss this special one-hour episode of Think Radio. Think Radio is supported by the Gunnison Country Times, Gunnison's locally owned hometown newspaper and by listeners like you. To find out how you can become a Think Radio supporter, visit kbut.org. Few people would disagree that the 1960s was among the most tumultuous and transformative decades in U.S. history. Change seemed to erupt all at once from one end of the cultural spectrum to the other. Suddenly, nothing was sacred, and the old ways of doing just about everything were up for renegotiation. The revolution first ignited around racial justice, but quickly set fire to neighboring causes like poverty, feminism, sexual freedom, and, above all, opposition to the Vietnam War. If you're looking for a tipping point in all that unrest, a moment when the impulse for real change moved from the hippie fringes into the nation's mainstream, then history is ready with an event that perfectly fits the bill. It was August 1968. 50 years ago this month, when tens of thousands of American young people converged on Chicago, where the Democratic National Convention was set to nominate Hubert Humphrey to challenge Republican Richard Nixon for the presidency. Fresh off of dramatic demonstrations outside the Pentagon the year before, protesters were determined to force an anti-war plank into the party's platform. Among the organizers, was a 29-year-old man from Virginia whose name would soon become familiar to everyone in America. Rennie Davis was a co-founder of the Students for Democratic Society and a tireless leader of the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. Demonstrations that week ended violently in what the government later admitted was a police riot. Davis was beaten along with hundreds of others, He and six fellow organizers were arrested and charged with conspiracy to incite a riot. Conviction would carry up to 10 years in prison. They were collectively known as the Chicago 7. In today's episode, Rennie Davis joins me by phone to look back on the 60s through half a century and forward to the lessons those troubled times hold for people today. Rennie, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I want to set the stage just a little bit for our conversation because it's the 50th anniversary, obviously, of the the riots in Chicago that prompted the trial of the Chicago 7, sounds so notorious, Chicago 8, counting Bobby Seale. Going back 50 years, that's a big leap for a lot of people. I mean, in 1968, the civil rights movement has been around in earnest for quite some time now. Vietnam War is in full swing casualties in that conflict just keep mounting. Unrest is is really pretty rampant in the country as a result of these things, not just one or the other, but both together. 
Lyndon Johnson has announced that he's not going to run for re-election, in large part because he's got anti-war resistance within his own party. In the midst of all of that, you decide, along with Tom Hayden and, and other activists that have been working together for quite some time, you decide to go to Chicago with as many people as you can include in a protest outside of the Democratic National Convention. That's the history. That's the setup. But there's a little bit more to the story that I'm interested in and that I want to start with. And that is that that wasn't the first time that you had been to Chicago. It wasn't the first time that you had been to the International Amphitheater where the convention was being held. You were there 12 years earlier in a whole different setting. I'm fascinated to learn that you were there to compete at a, at a national level with poultry judging for the 4-H. <laughs> well, you know, the people who went to Chicago, you know, they might have had long hair. They were a movement to change the world. They seemed like they wanted to leave society to change society. But the truth is, most of us came from pretty normal lives. You know, i grown up in Virginia. I lived on a rural farm. My nearest neighbor was quarter mile down the road. My dad decided that he wanted to go into the poultry business. So I was managing 5,000 chickens every 10 weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, my idea of a student movement and when I was in 10th grade in high school was the 4-H club. I mean, we're thousands <laughs> of people across the United States who learned about animal husbandry and poultry raising and that sort of thing. You know, I won the county fair contest with a steer, and it was one of the greatest claims to fame. And when I discovered that there was an opportunity to judge chickens, you know, I really studied up and went into it. And, and on the very first county contest that we had, our team won the county, and I was the top uh, person, you know, it was amazing. The first time I was ever in the news was on the front page of a local paper in Berryville, Virginia, called the Clark County Courier. And there I was with holding a chicken <laughs> up, you know, right on the front page, just grinning from ear to ear and completely unaware that the chicken had just pooped on my pants. You know? <laughs> it was like, it took me a year to live down that photograph in high school, you know. I'm but sure. But I went on to win the state championship, and then I went on to be number one on the East Coast, you know, chicken judging contest. So, you know, no one had any problems with me in my poop pants after that. And but that, when I think about the iconic photos of you in Chicago 12 years later, there is absolutely no connection that I can see between the Rennie Davis, who was there in 1968, <laughs> and the Rennie Davis, um, you know, poultry judge. And not only that, but champion poultry judge. How in the world does a person go from being that kid, 4-H nothing notorious about it, to being an icon of the anti-war movement in the 1960s. How did you go from, from one no to the other? I have no idea. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe after this interview, you can help me understand that myself. You know, the whole world of a movement that changed the world, Alan, to me, is almost mystical. I mean, if you think about it, in January 1960, I was a freshman at college. Uh, I was in a, a student group that was going to have tens and tens and tens of millions of people 
pour out and absolutely devote themselves to changing the world. But I'm telling you, in January 1960, there was no evidence of that at all. I mean, we were all right here, but we just walked right by each other, completely unaware of what we were about to do. I suppose that my only claim to having a little intuition during this period of my life was that there was something in me that sensed in January 1960 that students were going to come together and change everything. And, you know, I even shared that with some friends who just, you know, thought it was interesting and humored me, but no one took it seriously. And then, you know, four black freshmen in Greensboro, North Carolina, had the courage to one morning just go to a Woolworths lunch counter and sit down and and basically ask to be served. Which was just not uh, done at that time, just not done. It immediately got local white kids outside taunting them, and then it got got nasty, really. I mean, some people came in and tried to grind that cigarettes in the back of their neck. And What was it about that that, um, that caught your imagination? Really it wasn't like sit-ins had never happened before. It wasn't that uh, there hadn't been black resistance to segregation or legal lynchings, but we saw this on television. Maybe it was the event of television. You know, why I say it's mystical, it almost feels like everybody was in place and ready to go, but we needed an event to trigger us. When you look at movements that actually do appear, they're rare, but when they turn up, they change everything. (laughs) And when they occur, it's typically an event that triggers thousands or millions of people. As you look back then on the Greensboro Four and you pointing to that event, what happened next? What was it that happened after that event that led to certainly a a nation-changing movement. How did we go from that, and you're watching it on TV, to you've mobilized millions of people? There was a sense that something profound was happening in in our student body. And I formed a political party to run candidates for our student government at Ohio College. And we wound up winning the election. You know, we ran a slate of candidates who took public positions on civil rights. And I mean, typically, you talk about the food in the cafeteria at the student government, suddenly we were talking about world issues and events. And then a a person came through who was traveling, whose name was Tom Hayden. And he was forming an organization called Students for Democratic Society. And he also had formed a political party where he went to school at the University of Michigan. And there were others that were just spontaneously popping up. It was somehow in the air then, spontaneously happening on campuses all over? You know, it was just in the air. We went from being, you know, very focused students to caring about, you know, that wasn't just civil rights, although that was the primary focus in the beginning, but it was really the state of the country. I mean, Tom and I and others got together and, drafted a pamphlet, and then a large conference came together. It was 1962 in a place called Port Huron, Michigan. And, you know, we went to a meeting having no idea of its particular significance, but I would say it ignited the student movement in the United States. The Port Huron statement was read from coast to coast, and it was just this call for students to stand up for humanity and to put an end to 
racial discrimination. Let's be clear about the Port Huron statement, because that's the closest that any movement in the United States has come to a manifesto. And when you say that it was read from coast to coast, I think it's important to point out that was before the internet. No one was tweeting uh, these meetings that were happening. No one was uh, summarizing things on their website, blog, nothing like that. In order to be read coast to coast, you had to print this thing out and it had to be distributed person to person. Absolutely right. And And not only that, when we printed it out, it was running by a mimeograph machine that you turned the crank by hand (laughs) to make copies (laughs) of the Port Huron statement. And then we'd staple them together ourselves and we'd just carry them with us whenever we would travel to different campuses. Well, and one of the things that has been attributed to the SDS and maybe the Port Huron statement itself is the invention of the term participatory democracy. I've run across that in some of my reading that really we didn't have that phrase before you guys came along and sort of invented it. And the idea was, no, you really have to be involved. And so to turn the crank on a mimeograph machine over and over and make these copies, that's as participatory as it gets. How did you motivate people to do that? What was the trick? Yeah, there was a sense in among students initially that democracy had its flaws because you turned out every four years to go to an election where there were two parties that were more defined by how similar they were than their differences. But, you know, you might argue that the House of Representatives was elected democratically, but certainly the president of the university or the board of directors of a corporation wasn't elected in that same way. Institutions weren't democratic. And so for us, participatory democracy meant that democracy was about involving people who lived and worked in a community or an institution whose lives were affected by that institution, that everyone had a voice and everyone had a part and helping to shape the direction of that institution. And so long before we get to Chicago and the international attention that that drew, you were actually in Chicago again, this time not judging chickens, but you were doing organizing of a different kind. And what interests me about that is encouraging people and enabling people to participate in the institutions that affect them started for you on the streets of the poorest neighborhoods in Chicago, it wasn't so much about the war at that point, right? It was about equality and access to democracy. How did you decide that that was where you wanted to put your time and effort? Well, through long discussions with people around the country, the idea emerged that we should do community organizing, not just to a rights focus in the South, that that was already underway, but we should also move our movement into the northern slums and, and not just focus on uh, black discrimination, but also poor white discrimination. There were poor whites as well who were economically disenfranchised. And so it was an experiment in 1964. I was the director of a group called the Economic Research and Action Project. And we we had approximately 175 
student organizers went into 10 cities. At the same time, we were coordinating with 800 students who went into Mississippi in the summer of 64 to register black people to vote in Mississippi. Three of the volunteers were murdered on the opening day we arrived. Uh, I went to Chicago uh, and worked in a place called Uptown, which is where people from Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama had migrated. And on the first day we were there, we had about 40 people on staff. We were in two apartments and uh, the door literally blew open and Chicago police around two o'clock in the morning came in with guns drawn and, and suddenly we had guns at our head. We were under arrest. We had no idea for what. We were just sleeping. And even when we were before the judge, we still didn't know what it was about. Why, why were we arrested? We looked at the headlines of the Chicago newspaper when we were bailed out to find out that we were having a beer and pill party and for disturbing the peace, we were arrested. <laughs> you know? And was any of and that true? Up, no, everybody was just sleeping and had no idea. I mean, we were certainly not partying that night. We were exhausted. We had come from places all over the country to be there that night. But so, the idea that we could be arrested for made-up charges and then have a, a major newspaper berate us for something we hadn't even done really gave us an eye opener to the nature of politics, you know. Yeah, so And so you know, so when you when you fast forward from there then to the days of the MOB, I love that phrase. It's the National Mobilization for an End to the Vietnam War. Did I get that right? Yeah, the it's the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Well, when we fast forward from those first days in Chicago and you were getting a lesson in the middle of the night, what do you feel you learned from those days of activism that led to what we saw in Chicago in August of 1968? Well, I think that we learned to respect the communities we're trying to support, not come in so much from the outside. You know, welfare mothers really had no voice. You know, if a caseworker was against you, you really had very little capacity to do anything about it. But, you know, we had a union of welfare mothers, and and one person's complaint could cause our whole union to turn out of the welfare's office, and, and that got attention. Uh, young people, 18, 19 years old, were routinely beaten and clubbed by Chicago police for just, you know, being on the street corner too late at night and, you know, really not doing anything. And so we organized a union of youth in the community and, you know, put demonstrations in front of the Chicago police district that oversaw Uptown. I mean, the slumlords were just notorious where we were. And we could bring an entire building, just close it down. No one pays rent. And, you know, to evict a whole building is not, you know, we, we were able to deal with many real practical grievances. So we wound up really having the support. I met Martin Luther King for the first time when I was a community organizer in Chicago. And we actually met in a men's room in a Chicago church and we were sitting at two stalls, literally, and he was getting ready to organize an open housing march. And I said, well, we have a thousand people from Alabama, Kentucky, West Virginia, 
from Uptown that will basically support you will be in the demonstration. And, and Martin Luther King just, I mean, he was polite, but it was just, it was beyond his imagination that such a thing could possibly happen, you know. But we showed up. We were at a thousand strong, too. So I don't know, it's a deepening of our understanding and also our respect for people. Uh, SDF organized the first demonstration against the war. This was in 1965. Uh, we were aware that there was a war going on. It was atrocious. And so we organized the first demonstration. We thought it was a pretty impressive turnout with 25,000 people, but it, it just wasn't enough for one organization. It became clear to me and others that we had to form a true coalition where basically many, many organizations come together and commit to be together to plan large events that we can all agree on. And how, and so, how did you accomplish that? <laughs> through a lot of uh, diplomacy, listening, perseverance, individual groups really struggle to find common ground. You know, every group in a movement to change the world tends to be somewhat focused on their own agenda. And so to really get people to agree to work together in that way takes a certain quality of leadership to see it happen. It took two years to put it together. Uh, our first demonstration had 150 national movement organizations supporting one demonstration. It was the first one we had ever done. 150,000 people came to march on the Pentagon. Uh, I was a keynote speaker at that event. And from there, I became the coordinator of this coalition. And we planned to bring a half million to a million people to Chicago. And we felt we really could, that at this point, we were the only voice against the war. The Democratic Party certainly supported our position, but no political candidate wanted to stand up to resist a sitting president. It was really because a movement existed and because we existed and we were coming to Chicago that really created the gigantic pressure on Linda Johnson to say, you know, I'm, I'm resigning. I'm not going to run for a second term. And that set up the conditions for what happened in Chicago. Well, so let's pivot now and talk about what happened in Chicago. Because um, during those times, certainly when, when the TV cameras were rolling and the riots were happening, and then later during the trial, uh, your name, Rennie Davis, and the names of the other Chicago 8 became household names. Really, the reason for that was that a fair number of them did not agree with what you were doing. A fair number of them would have said they supported the police in their effort to clear you out of the park. They saw this happen in front of them. What was your intention going into Chicago? What is it that you hoped to achieve there? Our intention in Chicago was we saw ourselves mobilizing a very large-scale mobilization committed to nonviolence that would draw attention to the brutal, sickening war, really, in Vietnam. Uh, what was different about Chicago than other demonstrations was that there was a mayor in Chicago, his name was Daley, who had similarities to Donald Trump. He basically saw no need to honor the most sacred traditions and values of, of 
American institutions. You know, when I went in to negotiate permits so we could have our demonstration, Mayor Daley basically just thumbed his nose. And Daley just said to the White House, the Justice Department, Congress, and Senate, what are you going to do about it? I'm, I'm not doing it. So what happened was very similar today. Everybody wrung their hands, and there was, there was huge support for me to grant us permits where that was the right of an American citizen to be able to march down the street if you're going to be nonviolent. Uh, the Justice Department, Ramsey Clark, was the attorney general, sent out his top person to meet with me and then to meet with Mayor Daley, and that's where he concluded that there's just no way that Daley was going to grant permits. Daley was going to stand for what he called his law and order. He would mobilize 12,000 policemen to make it impossible. And the, the fact is that everyone was concerned about this issue, but no one really could do anything about it. But then there was us. We were a movement to change the world. We understood the, the dangers. I mean, it was literally the sons and daughters of America gathered in front of the Conrad Hilton, and we were clubbed and beaten, and Chicago policemen beat newsmen who were covering the event. They beat delegates to the convention who were simply coming out to show their their moral support for what was going on in the streets of Chicago. Even a mule train that was organized by Martin Luther King's organization was clubbed and beaten while the whole world was watching. People forget, but on August 28th, 1968, more people watched what happened in Chicago than watched the first man landing on the moon. And the fact is, is that public opinion polls like Gallup showed that a majority of the American people supported the government in the war in Vietnam before Chicago. But two weeks after that one demonstration, Gallup polls showed that a majority of the American people supported our position to end the war in Vietnam and bring the GIs home. So it was studied by a national investigation term to see who caused the riots. Everyone knew who had caused the riot. You know, this was a presidential commission with FBI and other investigatory, you know, abilities and resources, and it basically called what happened in Chicago a police riot. That was the absolute tenet of our coalition, nonviolence. The difference between then and now is that back then we had a movement to change the world. And right now, we don't have that. We have millions and millions of people at the starting gate for a movement to change the world. And now we're coming to the place where igniting a movement that will stand up for humanity is actually right in front of us. This is this is going to be the defining event of this time. This is what's going to actually uh, turn things around. Movement really changes everything. And we've done it before, and we're getting ready now to do it again.
a lot of things happening in the 60s that contributed to this movement that, in fact, as you say, really did. No one would dispute the idea that the 60s changed America radically. One of those people that was involved in that sort of cultural and social time was John Lennon. The Beatles certainly in the early 60s, but John Lennon really sort of stood out. He began to take a stand, and and you were there with him in the recording studio when John Lennon recorded what really became a very iconic song and a galvanizing focus point for this movement. Tell me that story. Well, it has a little bit of a backdrop, just I'll be quick. In the spring of 1970, when uh, the president, Nixon, invaded Cambodia, students went on strike. 90% of American universities and colleges closed down. And after that, there really was a sense in the student movement about what more can we do? I mean, it just seemed difficult to see how it would go forward. And so there was a sense that the movement was cooling down as we went into the fall of 1970. At the same time, the war situation was escalating. Scientists were seeing increasingly that chemical agent orange was causing genetic mutations. And so I went to the coalition to say we needed to consider large-scale civil disobedience in Washington. The coalition didn't have a problem with that. It just didn't believe it was possible. So I decided to test the waters, and so I went out speaking. My first talk was at Brown University, and after that talk and the response of people, I realized that we were going to basically organize the largest civil disobedience arrests in American history, which we did. You're referring to what has become known as the May Day protests? Yeah. I mean, there were 250,000 people in front of the Capitol on the opening event. Then a thousand of GIs who fought in Vietnam turned back their medals and awards to Congress. And when it came time to see who was ready to sit in roads and bridges to close down Washington during rush hour traffic using nonviolent tactics, uh, I spoke to 100,000 people. Many people feel it led to the White House deciding to sign the Paris Peace Accords with the Vietnamese. But at the same time, it was clear the anti-war movement was truly winding down. And right then, uh, right then, John Lennon and Yoko were in a, a hotel bed. <laughs> they called it a bed-in for peace. Uh, you know, I, I watched this on television like everybody else did. You know, John Lennon was trying to be, you know, creative and, and funny, but also very serious. And I realized that here's probably the preeminent couple in the world, and John is openly declaring that he's in the anti-war movement. And there was just no doubt about it. And so within a matter of a couple months, I found myself in, you know, his his apartment in lower Manhattan, and we started making plans for how we could work together. And I proposed that we tour the country. We go to 42 cities. He brings the musicians. I'll organize the speakers. Each city will focus on a particular issue, and we'll end in, at the Republican convention with a million people against the war. And John said, fine, I'm in. And I was a little take it back and shock but so one afternoon we were making plans for our our tour 
And John looked at his watch and realized that he was late for something. And I had no idea what it was. He just had to go. And I said, well, no problem. I'll just catch you in the morning. And he said, well, you know, what? If, if you're free, why don't you come along? So we jumped in the back of a rented limousine and headed off to some building in mid-Manhattan, New York. I had no idea where we were going. You know, as soon as I came in, Yoko was there. The Plastic Ono Band, which was the band that John was playing with at that time after the breakup of the Beatles, they were there. I could see it was a recording studio. Phil Spector was at the mixing board. A couple people that worked at the plant studio were standing along the side. You know, Yoko and I just sat in the front all by ourselves. John took a seat at the piano and uh and began to play the final overdubs of a song that uh was called imagine i mean at the time i had no idea you know that this was really such going to be such a classic song but i feel today looking back on that you know honored to have been there for the recording of imagine well i i would think so yes <laughs> All right, well, I want to shift gears again and go back and pick up the experience of the trial. I mean, we're talking now on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of of those events in Chicago, but the year following that was really something entirely different. The, the riots themselves and the police response led to your arrest and being charged with conspiracy to incite a riot. Tell me about the experience of being one of the Chicago Seven. I mean, for crying out loud, this is an iconic moment in 1960s history. The closest thing really to a political show trial, and I'm not trying to place judgment on it, but it had that character. There was, there was some theatrical, there were some theatrics involved that we don't normally see in judicial proceedings. What was it like sitting there in the courtroom with this unfolding around you? <laughs> well, sometimes it was sobering and serious, but most of the time it was just great drama theater and pretty funny. The, the judge, uh, in a way, from our point of view, couldn't have been better. And he was so prejudicial against the defendants, you know, and just openly mocking us and making you know, our life miserable. We used to do things like we'd all sit around the defendant's table and, you know, our feet would go up and down like we really had to go to the bathroom bad, all of us, all at the same time, <laughs> you know. So the, so our lawyer would get up and make a, you know, a kind of a funny motion that essentially we just wanted a bathroom break. You can see they, you know, need a break, you know. And basically the judge would know, you know, would always turn down Every single defense motion that was made over the six-month trial was denied, uh, and everything that the prosecution wanted was accepted. It was a trial where a new law had just been passed. It, it occurred because of the, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King that spring, and, and uh, you know, an onerous law was passed, probably the, the, a law that threatened you know, constitutional rights more than any other law. It made it a crime to use interstate facilities across the state line. You travel from state to state speaking, or if you wrote a book, so that would be determining what your intention was, what you said. And so if you had the intention to incite a riot, 
And a riot was defined as an assembly of three or more people, one of whom violated or threatened to violate a law. So you could have three people on a street corner, you know, one of them having their fist up in the air as police drive by, and that would be a misdemeanor. There was no time frame. So, I mean, this might happen a year after you spoke in that place, and now you're facing five years in prison. And uh, we were charged with uh, the substantive case of violating the statute, but also with a conspiracy. Some of the people were involved in Chicago. Bobby Seale, for example, he was the chairman of the Black Panther Party. He was one of the uh, defendants. I had invited Eldridge Cleaver to speak in Chicago, who couldn't come at the last minute. So uh, Eldridge suggested that Bobby go in his place. Bobby came in and made two speeches. I never even saw him while he was in Chicago, and I'd never met him beforehand. And for that, he was faced, for those two speeches, he was facing 10 years in prison. And so he decided, because his lawyer had to have a gallbladder uh, operation before, you know, and then the judge wouldn't give a continuance, he decided to defend himself. And so he would stand up and cross-examine a witness anytime his name was mentioned by a witness. The marshals in the room, there were typically about 30 of them. They looked like Cleveland linebackers. <laughs> they would come and, you know, at the direction of the judge, you know, push Bobby back into a seat. And that, that got forcible and, and physical over time. And eventually, one day, Bobby came out in a chair, chained and shackled, you know, with a pressure bandage around his head so he couldn't speak. And he was chained and gagged in a courtroom, sat right next to me. You know, it was so amazing because you could still hear him very muffled, I demand my constitutional rights. <laughs> you know? so, and then the pressure bandage just got stronger and stronger. And it was intense. I mean, sometimes you could see blood coming down his cheek. And, you know, this was happening in front of the jury. As a matter of fact, he became kind of a symbol for the trial all over the world, I mean, his voice was heard in Africa, Europe, Asia, you know, Canada, South America, all over the United States. You know, these artist pictures of Bobby Seale, a black man chained and gagged in an American courtroom, just became an iconic picture. Students were just on fire over the trial all across the country. Yeah, let me interrupt for a second. Sure. First of all, it seems like that's a textbook example of how not to run a trial, uh, to, to give uh, the world that kind of imagery to feed on. What, in your opinion, looking back after all these years, what were they thinking, taking such a heavy-handed approach? This is where the mystical part comes in. You know, Judge Hoffman was his name, and he was drawn from a lottery. And quite honestly, he had a reputation in Chicago as just being the most obnoxious judge imaginable. And, you know, he was 74 years old, and he'd come in after lunch after having two or three martinis, and he would slur his words. And he just was vitriolic with our lawyers and with the defendants. Our mission was really to, to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, we didn't look at the trial as a place where we were all uptight and scared for our life. We, we understood the unique deck of cards that we had been dealt and that 
this gave us a platform. I mean, I spoke every night for six months, and, you know, a small turnout was 5,000 people. Often the governor would call out the National Guard because I was speaking. And then I would speak in a stadium with 100,000 people that night and then rush back and get, get back into, you know, the, the courtroom by 10 o'clock so I didn't lose my bail. Students came from all over the country to be a part of this event. And, I mean, we had a press conference every day at noon during the lunch break, and it was truly larger than a presidential press conference. I mean, it was the, the world media was there, and we were typically the lead story every single night on all networks. So on the opening day of the trial, the New York Times described it as the most significant political trial in American history. And it, it really did live up to its billing. And uh, but, but let me stop and ask you, why do you think they gave it that prominence, the most significant political trial in American history? That That's a heck of a statement. And why do you think it lived up to that? Well, there's a couple of things. One, the law itself, I mean, the open day of the trial, you should have seen who showed up in the courtroom. And we had like a who's who of constitutional lawyers you know, from Harvard and all the major universities in the country sitting in the courtroom. They were just aghast over the fact that American citizens were being tried for this onerous law. And then secondly, because the whole world had watched what had happened in Chicago, what happened in Chicago was seen by everybody, you know. And and then the official investigation said that who you should indict is the mayor and the police. And instead... You know, eight defendants were indicted, and the police were, nothing really happened to the police. And who conducted so, that official investigation that you're referring to? Uh, it, was, it was headed by a person named Walker. It was called the Walker Report. It basically was a presidential report. It was prepared for the president of the United States. The report became a book and went right to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list within the first week of it being issued. So it was a hugely popular story. And, you know, for us, we just felt, I mean, we would even say this to the media, and you know, we felt like we had just won the Academy Award of protest to be indicted. We weren't really, I mean, you know, in fear or anything like that. It was just for us, even if we went to jail, we just saw the opportunity to really reach so many millions of people, you know, and we just saw so the, the issues of what happened in the streets of Chicago just moved into a federal courtroom. And it became really a, a public sensation, not just in the United States, but around the world. Well, a lot of people would have a hard time with the idea that going to jail is like winning the Academy Award. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's not a common point of view. It, 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 it isn't. I agree. Something happens when you have a movement that changes the world. I don't know. Maybe you lose your rational. Certainly you lose your fear. I mean, on the way to Chicago, for example, there was a committee in Congress called the House on American Activities Committee, and it was notorious for ruining people's lives. I mean, in the 50s, when there was no movement to support people, I mean, people who just had some little bit liberal leanings would be brought before HUAC. I mean, people committed suicide, and they lost their careers in Hollywood, and I mean, it was just a terrible, devastating, dark thing that was happening. And so we were we were indicted. I, mean, I think there were five of us from the Chicago 7. We were hauled before HUAC on our way to Chicago. They had an auditorium. 5,000 people were in the auditorium. They were all our people. 
I mean, pretty much everybody was in their 20s screaming and shouting and just having a great time. And, and so when Abby Hoffman was asked, have you now or ever been a member of the Communist Party? You know, he just leans into the microphone and says, well, uh, I refuse to answer the question on the grounds that it might cause me to vomit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was like, it was just a combination of rational understanding about oppression from Congress and just making fun. I mean, just having a, a hoot. And everybody could see that if they wanted to arrest us, they'd have a national strike on their hands. We had support. That, you know, we had support everywhere. And basically, after the end of one hearing where we showed up, the day the HUAC ended after our testimony before HUAC, it was so humiliating to the committee. You guys decided, maybe it wasn't a decision, maybe it was spontaneous, but somehow or another, humor and playfulness became a part of your protest. And and facing this kind of consequence, facing prison, facing who knows what. I mean, Bobby Seale was was facing bodily harm in the courtroom. I'm very interested to know what made you guys so different in that humor and playfulness and making an attempt to to show the absurdity of the whole thing uh, became a part of how you approached it rather than than with fear like most people would. Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes the times call for a certain type of courage. You know, I mean, I, I think about the first bus rides into the South where, you know, it was technically legal, but you, you had to sit in the back of the bus if you were a black person, you know. And so people sitting up front or white and a black person sitting together up front, I mean, I mean, mobs turned out to set buses on fire and attack people. And when we got to Mississippi, the governor of Mississippi just announced that they're going to put us into the most notorious prison in all of the country, the Mississippi State Penitentiary. So we just welcomed that. And what we did was we filled the entire prison with people, just busload after busload after busload. And, and inside the prison, everybody was singing, we shall overcome. And, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was just incredible. And the media sees this, so the courage of people to stand up to darkness, to stand up to oppression. Uh, it's it just, you know, people rise to the occasion when darkness envelops the world. And that's why I feel confident that a movement to change the world is about to ignite again.
It's not many people who can make the claim that the Vice President of the United States says of them, that guy's the most dangerous man in America. And yet, Spiro Agnew said that about you. What did you think when you heard that? Let's put it into context again. At heart, way back when, you were a chicken farmer from nowhere. And now the Vice President of the United States is using language like this. You're the most dangerous man in America. What did that make you feel? Well, to be, to be really honest, you know, I, it wasn't so much self-importance, whether it was negative or positive. You know, I was part of a global family, and I happened to be a person who could give voice from time to time, you know, to the sentiments for, you know, diversity and civil rights and just human, human understanding, decency. Um, and we had our opposition no different than today. But because we had such enormous support in the country, that a statement from the vice president, he was on a tour basically just trying to put down our whole movement and, you know, picked on me. I mean, I was a voice because I was the coordinator of the anti-war coalition. And, you know, I put on these demonstrations with half a million people. And so I seemed to be a symbol of the whole problem to them. But, you know, we were serious about ending the war. We weren't intimidated because the government of the United States, I mean, the government of the United States was waging a, a truly sickening war in Vietnam. And that's, that's what moved us. That's what motivated us. We wanted to put an end to it. And so when Spiro Agnew came out and made that statement, it was picked up all over the place by the media and so forth. But it, it, it just increased my ability to reach more people. It didn't, it didn't make me want a cow or, you know, pull in my light or, you know, I wasn't, I don't mean that I was arrogant about it either. You know, I really don't. It just made me feel like our movement is something else. It changes everything. You have darkness enveloping the world today, but we don't have this kind of movement yet in the United States. And when these movements occur, human beings, ordinary people, find, find a place inside themselves that has courage and beauty, that, that because we really become a global family and we express humanity and we stand up for humanity and we are completely committed to writing a new human story for real. And, and yet, and I so don't he, know that it's particularly, you know, something particular to me as much as it is the, the nature of the time. Could that happen today? Absolutely, it could. In fact, it seems like it wants to tremendously. I would say every single generation living on Earth today could join a movement to change the world. But who would lead that movement, in my opinion, would be Generation Z. And they're in high school. That's where really the voice of courage is coming from right now today. And it was just like it was in the 60s. You can feel it and sense it. And it's right here to happen. And yet you talk about a movement as though it's sort of this monolithic thing. There, There's always the other point of view. 
I mean, from the point of view of the status quo in the government, you were a dangerous man. And from the point of view of many people, citizens across the country, uh, Vice President Agnew was speaking for them. So I wonder, maybe you did have to answer this question then, but how would you answer it now? What would you say to those people who, when they heard that statement from the Vice President, they said, absolutely right. He is a dangerous man. I'd even go so far as to call him a traitor for some of his activities. What was your response to that? What is it today? Well, I would say that today uh, I, I'm pretty aware of how movements can change everything. I'll just give you an example. You know, in Mississippi, when we went into Mississippi, uh, there were good people in the Democratic Party, and they were good people. I mean, if I would to hang out with them, we, uh, they'd have no problem at all. We could chat about the weather or farming or a- anything, really. But there was a culture that had them think that it was appropriate and right to basically put on a hood and go to see a beautiful family who happened to be black lynched, okay, because somebody had a rumor about them. And then basically the next day put on their Sunday suits and everybody could see who was at the lynching. And it was good people. It was also the sheriff and the mayor and the city council and the people that ran the community. And basically, we went into Mississippi with that culture, and and we would we would reach out to them if we could, but we also drew a line in the sand and said no more. This is stopping here. Now, if you look back, say fifty years from that, people in Mississippi really. I mean, there's certainly racism and prejudice galore and bigotry, but legal lynchings have stopped in Mississippi because of what we did. And the fact is, is that the people of Mississippi know that our position was was really is now their position. You know that there is there is a, an equality that we gave a freedom to Mississippi because of the courage that we had. And so today, to the good people of the Republican Party who go to these Trump rallies and hear the, an incredible story that makes them feel important and, and you know, given attention to and so forth, it's not really easy to have a conversation with them or to suggest that actually it's, it's a cult of personality and it's a rally of hate. But the fact is, is that the good people in the Republican Party are in an organization that spits in the face of the Statue of Liberty and is like a wrecking ball to the, the immigrant tradition that made this country great in the first place. And so at the end of the day, you know, maybe not today, but down the road, it, it will be the sons and daughters of America that will be cherished. And we, and we will we will be respected for what we did. We, we will be embraced by history, just like the Renaissance embraced by history and the American Revolution's embraced by history. At the time, there was the same people in opposition to those movements too. 
saying the same thing. You can't do this. This is not, you know. But the fact is, is that you you win these battles long term, and that's the perspective that I would take. It's time for everyone who can understand what's happening on this planet to stand up for humanity. It really is possible to write a new human story. In fact, the only ones who really are going to do it is going to be the movement to change the world. Okay? It's, it's just the Democratic Party needs us right now. It really does. The whole of humanity needs this kind of courage and this kind of beauty to basically take leadership right now. And so uh, we've done it before, and we can absolutely definitely do it again. Rennie, thanks mm-hmm. for being with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're coming your way. So if anybody listening to this wants to, you know, sit down and chat, we'll, we'll be in your town. Think Radio is a production of Alan Mortis Media. To contact Alan, visit alanwardismedia.com. The show's producer is Issa Forrest. Original music by Issa Forrest. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another great conversation on Think Radio.